This episode of the I Save That podcast is made possible by Angiodynamics, the manufacturers of a small device that's guiding a big shift in patient care. Beam puts the power of fast, flexible, cordless ultrasound in your hands and in your pocket. With the ability to scan patients and review images in seconds, Beam offers a practical and affordable way to enhance decision-making and help improve patient outcomes. For more information, please visit www.beamultrasound.us. That's B-I-I-M ultrasound.us. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. Season one, episode three of the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nazrallah. I'm joined by Ava's Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson. Hi, guys. Hey, Eric Sager, Java Editor-in-Chief. Hello, sir. What's going on? Eric. I am, uh, I'm back from Wakova, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I, I finally adjusted off of the time lag, which was six hours ahead, but Wakova doesn't sleep, so it was more about being up for 24 hours in a row for four consecutive days. And then the 4th of July, and now we're back in the swing of things in the dead of summer. Yep. Uh, that's what's going on with me. Eric, talk to me about your world. What's going on in my world? Well, I can't believe it is almost mid-July already. Summer is just chugging right along, and with that, AVA 2018 is approaching rapidly. I mean, we're almost to the two-month mark, folks. That's getting pretty close, and we're almost one month away uh, from the early bird deadline coming to pass for registration. That comes on August 13th, so everyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're considering coming to conference in Columbus this September, I encourage you to get your registration filled out as soon as possible, and I think it's going to be a really great meeting. We have a ton of great education and a lot of fabulous speakers that are lined up to come to Ohio. So we're excited to host Ava there, and it's coming along really soon. So get those registrations in as soon as you can before the end of the summer, and that way you can save some money um, before the price goes up. Additionally, the next issue of Intravascular Quarterly, or IQ, which is Ava's electronic newsletter, is due out in mid-August, so next month. So if you have a content idea um, or article that you wish to share, you can send me an email at esager at avainfo.org. That's E-S-E-G-E-R at avainfo.org. IQ is something that I put together, but I love the help of AVA members or anyone else with a vascular access-related topic that they would like to write about or share an article that they already have written. So it can be anything about vascular access, you know, infection prevention, vascular access devices, anything you would want um, shared in the newsletter that you think our membership would see as beneficial. Also, uh, if you guys have any feedback for what we're doing with the podcast, feel free to send us an email at podcast at avainfo.org. And you can also reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and Pinterest. It's really easy to get a hold of us. And we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear what you guys want us to chat about, you know, what we can do better, uh, what needs to be improved on. So we'd love to hear feedback. And, uh, Podcast at avainfo.org, or as the kids say, you can at us on social media. <laughs> yeah, as, as the kids say. But I know Judy's been really busy with a lot of stuff too. Judy, what's going on in your world out in San Diego? Well, my world, San Diego, has been insanely hot this last weekend. By the way, the raspy Judy Thompson. <laughs> the raspy, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I sang in some rock concert. No, I didn't. I just <laughs> came across this voice. Um, it was 114 to 117 in my neighborhood last week, this weekend. Warm, definitely warm. It's uh, So San Diego's not always 70 degrees, evidently. 117 was too warm for this girl, but... Um, that's I, like a Kelvin temperature. Jeez. That's ridiculous. Yes. I need to go to Celsius just to make it reasonable now. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, it's crazy hot. But now that the high-level disinfection, low-level disinfection paper is out, I have been concentrating all my attentions back on the guidelines, which super excited about, still very stressed about, because they're not as far along as I'd like them to be yet. But... We have some really good sections. Um, looking forward to getting those out, getting those into review, and publish soon. And that's like practical guidance beyond just like a PDF of words to read and then try to interpret. It's to explain what what these like. For example, if you're reading about the guidance for care and maintenance for catheter care, like what how, are you just reading something or are you seeing something? What is that going to look like? Yeah, all of the above. That's the really exciting part. So um, often, all the guidelines I've read, you read them and you read them and you read them and you try to find them. This one, it will be searchable, but just not searchable in words, but in videography. So if you want to see how to do a proper dressing change, you go click on care and maintenance and find dressing change and you open it up and you'll see videography of a dressing change. You'll see videography of proper securement in different various forms of securement. Now, all of it will be sutureless because one of our uh, AVA recommendations, practice recommendations, is all lines will be secured with a sutureless or a manufactured securement device. Dressing changes, needleless connector changes, trying to gain patency again. So if you lose patency on a catheter, you can watch a video on the procedure on trying to clear that line. It's going to be awesome. Even this, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. There will be high-def video, high-def photography, and also some illustrations and animation. Judy, this does not sound like any guideline I've ever seen before in it's vascular not, access. It's not. Hence um, why some of the deadlines and some of the timelines have been pushed. And I had a great talk with Nancy Moreau a couple days ago. We're talking about a different subject. Actually, we were talking about high-level disinfection. And the guide, the um, guidance that we just put out. They're asking me similar questions. I said, yeah, I'm pretty stressed over the guidelines. And I said, you know, we have one opportunity to make a first impression. And this is going to be, the, the first impression we make is going to be impressive. The sections we get out, we'll get out as soon as we can. But we're not putting it out until it's right. We're, we're adding some of this videography, which I really think is going to change the way people can look, learn. And instead of going to YouTube to find a video of unknown technique, this will be evidence-based technique. So something that any clinician could emulate and feel comfortable to doing the right thing for their patient. This is a huge unmet need. And I've you know, seen a little bit of what you're putting together with your team, Judy, and no one can wait for it. Like we're all ready for it to, to hit uh, the public. But I think like you said, it needs to be done properly, and once it's completed and finished, I think it'll raise all other uh, guidelines, expectations for standards when you see them coming out. Thanks. I really I hope so. 
the uh, you're going to put a bow with with Hudson later in the in the uh, podcast. You're going to put a bow on the low level disinfection guides and how to actually get that practically put into into practice in your institution. But uh, coming up next, we have an interview with Dr. Matthew Jones from East Kent Hospitals, and he's also a consultant with the National Health Service, talking about what you were just referring to, um, moving away from suturing uh, vascular access devices to more of an engineered stabilization device or a manufactured sutureless device, not just because of the securement of the catheter, but to mitigate the infection risk and everything that comes with having a tube put into the vein. Um, that uh, interview is uh, was made possible by Interad Medical, the manufacturers of SecureCat. It's also part of our Wakova interview series that we'll be uh, putting uh, into different podcast episodes this summer. Since uh, the World Congress for Vascular Access had uh, basically the world's thought leaders on vascular access in one place, we recorded a few interviews. Um, but coming up next, we'll have that guidance uh, from Judy and Hudson. Beam from AngioDynamics makes ultrasound more practical, more accessible, and easier to standardize than ever before thanks to a cordless pocket-sized design, and it comes at a fraction of the price of traditional ultrasound equipment. Those machines are expensive, forcing facilities and practices to share a handful of devices. The Beam Probe is made to be both compact and durable, offering a powerful ultrasound scanner in a handheld format, and its size and convenience do not compromise accuracy or precision. And the Beam app, available for both Android and iOS, incorporates presettings, minimal keystrokes, and safe data storage to make the ultrasound scanner as easy to use as possible. Just install the app and start scanning. So instead of having to track down and move bulky, traditional ultrasound machines, Beam lets you start scanning and viewing images on a connected smart device in just seconds, right at the patient's bedside. Visit beamultrasound.us. That's B-I-I-M ultrasound. Dot us or email customer service at angiodynamics.com if you'd like to try Beam Ultrasound at your facility. It's Ramsey, and I'm joined today by Dr. Hudson Garrett and Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education with Ava. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm doing well. Judy, how's California? It's hot today, but it's great. Thank you so much. I love California. That's awesome. I think what she really means, Ramsey, is that it's about, you know, 85 degrees <laughs> and it's too cold. <laughs> Judy is wearing a parka right now. I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> I'm actually in workout clothes and a tank top. It's 102. Oof. Okay, that is, that's it's warm. warm. That's warm. Um, I'm no parka. I, I was a parka-free day, except for I did have fuzzy pajamas on this morning. It was cold. <laughs> Which means it was, it was like 75, 70. yeah. The, uh, That's good. You provide a, a good opportunity here. You said it was hot. What else is hot is that uh, recently, Ava, with, with you two as the authors, uh, published guidance around ultrasound probe disinfection in institutions, and the purpose of our chat today is to talk about uh, how we can be practical and, and apply uh, the guidance that you put together uh, in the institution. It's one thing to put out a position paper with guidance. It's another thing to put it into practice. So um, let's do that. How, how should the new AVA position statement be shared inside of, of a healthcare institution? If, if you're a nurse or a doctor or someone working in a hospital listening to this podcast and they, they've seen the, the guidance, 
what do they do now? Hudson, I'll start with you. Sure, and thanks for setting up such a good question because I think it's actually the most important question, Ramsey. You know, we, we struggle in healthcare with, we have great practice and we have a good understanding of what great practice looks like, but to the point of the question, we don't, we don't really actually implement it. And so I think this is a unique example of where vascular access can take the lead and you know disseminate this not only within the vascular access community in their own institution but also with their infection prevention and control colleagues and specifically environmental services biomedical engineering and nursing and so it's a great opportunity to bring all those stakeholders to the table together talk about what the general disinfection practices are and then make sure that it's incorporated in your policy and procedure not just within vascular access but across your institution where these ultrasound uh, transducers might be utilized Mm -hmm. absolutely Um, well said by the way but part of the problem we have is we look at we look at guidance documents and then we look at the difficulty in trying to implement sometimes it's like oh my gosh how do i make that a reality i'd like to go do it so we're trying to make it simple we're trying to make this a document that is actually operationalized at the bedside that doesn't stop the flow of practice that doesn't impact your work as it could so i'm pretty excited about it yeah, guidance is good, and practical guidance is even better. You can put it into practice. So Hudson, is Ava recommending low-level disinfection for all ultrasound transducers that are used in vascular access procedures? Right, so really what we're looking at is a minimum expectation of low-level disinfection and preferably intermediate-level disinfection, which is actually achieved with pretty much most of the hospital-grade um, EPA-registered disinfectants that are out there. So we know that if that ultrasound uh, transducer is intact, the sterile probe cover is utilized, that we can safely do this practice and still be um, pragmatic about our application of the spalding classification. So that's a minimal expectation, but preferably intermediate level disinfection. And so for those clinicians, how, how should they be trained in the proper evidence-based practice of disinfecting an ultrasound transducer? I, I think that there's a couple spots we need to talk about. First, um, just real quickly, I doubt that many people listening were ever trained on how to clean their ultrasound transducer. Right. I know I wasn't. And this is a brand new, like, what? I need training on how to do this? Absolutely, you need to have training. What, uh, in the meantime, what what can vascular access clinicians do to further this important clinical topic? It, it kind of showed up on your radar out of the blue, Judy. We talked about it in episode one. It's something you weren't even thinking about. And then all of a sudden, uh, now we, Ava Hudson, Judy Thompson, putting out guidance around ultrasound probe disinfection, what can the clinician do to to advance this the same way that you advanced it and made it a topic of conversation? I think one of the first things we all need to do is look at the evidence. It's, it's shocking to me that this information has been out there for so long and it just really reared its head. It's, this is not new information. Um, many guidance documents have recommended high-level disinfection. Now, again, we're recommending low-level disinfection for vascular access ultrasound probes when they're sheathed properly and they're not, there's no contamination. But the guidance out there from other organizations, many of them have said high-level disinfection, and it has not hit the radar of uh, my colleagues, myself included, up until about six weeks ago. So data diving, looking at the evidence and really digesting it to see how it really affects us. Combing the literature, anything else you would suggest, Hudson? Well, I I think there's a need, and this is where Ava can be a good partner in this, to collaborate with our industry colleagues on viable solutions, both at the device level, but also at the 
disinfection level. And I think that's also going to involve FDA and EPA as well, because it really goes back, the legal liability goes back to the manufacturer's instructions for use. And so I'm hoping that this podcast will be helpful in our manufacturing partners in understanding the risk associated with this and then risk mitigating that with appropriate instructions for use using EPA-registered hospital-grade disinfectants. So I think there's a, a unique opportunity for AVA to sort of bridge that gap as well because, you know, at the end of the day, clinical innovation doesn't just come from clinicians. It also comes from industry. And then it has to pass through our regulatory partners like FDA and EPA in order to be brought to the market. So there's there's a piece of this pie for everybody to understand, and only with all three will we be successful in creating long-term sustainable solutions. Absolutely, and it's one of the unique uh, facets of how AVA works with its members. Uh, our, our industry partners are our members, and they help bridge some of these gaps that uh, are, are that come out in, in practice, and, and they give us solutions. You talked about EPA-registered uh, Solutions Are there any EPA-registered hospital-grade disinfectants appropriate for disinfection d- disinfection for these types of, of devices? There are. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, EPA publishes several different lists of registered disinfectants that are hospital-grade and appropriate for specific pathogens. In the guidance document itself, we actually call out certain claims from a microbiology standpoint that you should be looking for in order to be safe. And, and we know that this is very similar to the glucometer issue that we talked about on the last issue, that there's going to be primarily exposure to blood. And so with blood, we know that the, the biggest risk is bloodborne pathogens. And so we want to make sure that that disinfectant is effective against HIV and hepatitis B virus is a minimum. Um, and hepatitis C is preferred. But then looking at your multidrug-resistant organisms and your other viruses, that might be problematic. And so all of that detail is found there. Um, the easiest thing for the vascular access clinician or even the infection preventionist to do is to pull that information from the guidance document, go get your own hospital-grade disinfectant, and then go to the manufacturer's website or the EPA website, and you can actually pull down that master label and compare and make sure that all of the relevant claims you have to protect your patients as well as protect your staff. The other part, too, that I I do want to add to that is when many clinicians, they pull their probe cover off and they grab the disinfectant wipe first go. We need to remove any of that ultrasound gel that's on the probe prior Mm -hmm. to disinfecting. So it's similar to cleaning skin prior to us disinfecting skin, we need to clean that probe prior to disinfecting the probe. So the chemicals can actually go do their work. Right. So that's, that's an important point, Judy. We talked about the what earlier and then the how you're putting into practice. So what precisely what elements do you include in your policy and procedure to ensure that all the critical aspects of the recommended disinfection practice are addressed? I mean, how many steps are there? What what are you putting into, into this uh, into, the, into your policy? Well, we've yet to, we have not written a policy yet. Ava has not published a policy. It's right. something that I'd like to work on. But we have 13 steps within the guidance document that discuss things that you should really go down. And there's a checklist as well about um, that is written that you can look at. But part of the policy development is within the hospital system itself. But training, training is one, validating training. Everyone that does this, if you're placing devices and your primary job is a vascular access, you place vascular access devices with ultrasound, you need to understand this inside and out. And you need to understand the ramifications of the proper disinfection. What if you breach that probe cover? So what happens then? Because that does happen. I've seen it out in, in the clinical world to where the needle goes through the probe cover. So then what? Mm-hmm. Then that is not protected. 
So you need to have the what if scenarios in there as well. Right. And I think Hudson, Hudson put together a lot of these steps. Hudson and I together, but Hudson took a, the primary lead on that. And he, he discussed, we discussed what to do if the, the probe cover is, or the sheath is actually violated with a needle or if it tears or if there's a malfunction to it. Mm-hmm. So we can expect some sort of a policy to come out of AVA with regard to how, how you ensure all these aspects of, of the guidance that you put together are covered. Yes, yes. All right. It, um, it's not the hottest thing on, on the plate right now, but definitely something we do want to put together. I've seen the plate. There's plenty on it. <laughs> <laughs> what, one, one last question before I let you guys go. How can, if I'm a nurse or a doctor listening to, to this podcast. How can I improve compliance with disinfection of ultrasound transducers used by my vascular access clinicians? So I think there's a couple of things. It's, it's no different than hand hygiene. If you don't put it in their face, they're not going to be able to do it you know, easily. So it needs to be on the actual ultrasound machine, whether it's in a basket, on the cart, um, or attached to it in some form or fashion, because then it puts it in the place. And the same is true for hand hygiene. Um, so have that disinfectant present there. Number two is you need to make sure that staff members you know, are actually trained on the use of it. And I think Judy, you know, mentioned that beautifully earlier is that when you go to nursing school or respiratory therapy school or physician or nurse practitioner, whatever, they don't teach you how to disinfect equipment. That's not part of the curriculum. And so we're expecting clinicians to do things that they were never trained to do. Um, And while it may sound very, very easy, the consequence of of cleaning your home wrong is a lot different than the consequence of of cleaning an ultrasound probe incorrectly. And so staff members should be working with environmental services personnel who are the experts in this. Um, to actually do teach back so that they can actually understand how to do that as well as the manufacturer. And so if I was, you know, a clinical leader in vascular access, the first question I would ask for any equipment I had is, do I have a way to actually clean it and is it validated? If I cannot clean and disinfect it according to the manufacturer's instructions, then it should not be in my institution. Mm -hmm. And so we need to challenge our manufacturing partners to provide that validated method that's required by FDA and then roll that, you know, all the way throughout the organization as well as put the product, um, whatever the disinfectant is that's being used, right there at point of care. That'll just really make compliance a lot easier for us. Right. Out of sight, out of mind. It's easier to do, do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. So front and center. Thank you. He is Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr., Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. She is Judy Thompson, Director of Clinical Education for the Association for Vascular Access. Thank you both for your contributions to Vascular Access and uh, for your time today. No problem. Thanks, Ramsey. Here in Copenhagen at Wakova with Dr. Matt Jones. Hi, I'm Great Britain. Hi, hi. Um, good to see you, Doctor. Uh, we're at Wakova. We're at this you know every two year conference. What is your takeaway from this uh, patient driven uh, symposia uh, that we've been experiencing here on day three? Uh, what what are you going to bring back to your practice uh, from from Copenhagen? Every time I attend the Wakova conference, you pick up something new. Um, there's always interesting things to learn. Uh, there's a lot this year um, about securement fixation dressings um, longevity you know making sure your lines last and that's for me it's been the big take-home message um, 
for me for this year is is we should be able to make these lines last. However we do that, we need to study that more. Lots of studies going on going forward. So for me, that's the take home message. Both for the therapy and for the for the comfort and benefit of the patient. Correct. So, so tell tell our listeners a little bit about your background. And yeah, your I uh, I'm a consultant anaesthetist. I've uh, been a consultant in the UK. For about 15 years now, um, I have a very specific interest, uh, sub-interest in anaesthesia in vascular access. Um, I'm also the lead uh, clinician for the vascular access service in my hospital in the UK. Um, and I have a very well-developed, for the UK, a very well-developed vascular access service um, in, in that hospital. Um, so, yeah, but my day-to-day -day job is a consultant anaesthetist, but I have a very special interest in vascular access as well. Right. So, good. And... In, in being so involved and entrenched with vascular access, you deal with a lot of central venous access devices. Correct. What what sort of uh, uh, clinical issues were you experiencing with, with CVCs? Yeah, so I, it, it really goes back to the fact that we first started using the, the Secura Cath on our PIC lines. We have a very well-established PIC line service, but I also work on the intensive care unit. We're replacing a lot of central line CVCs um, or centrally inserted catheters. And uh, it, it dawned on me that the, the the product we were using for the uh, the pick lines seemed to be the evidence was starting to support it. It was showing we were getting good results. So I was thinking uh, whether we could look at using it on our intensive care unit to secure our central venous access devices. Um, so that's how you became aware of subcutaneous engineered stabilization yeah, because devices of, through for, pick lines. Originally, because of coming to a cover and seeing it well ride and so on and so forth. But we started using it on pick lines. Uh, there was a lot of evidence already out there about the advantages of that. And I was thinking to myself, can we use that principle, uh, extrapolate that into the critical care environment? Where, to be frank, then what I did was do an audit within my own intensive care unit of uh, my central venous access devices, both the the insertion and the initial stabilization and the ongoing care and maintenance um, and that audit revealed to me that we, we had a little bit of a problem uh, in terms of keeping these lines clean, safe, secure, dry and, and infection free. Um, so that's where the idea came from, it sort of transferred over from my, my pick line experience um, and, and that's how we went. So yeah, we, uh, we started to look at um, how we could use it on the intensive care. So you saw the gaps with CBC care and maintenance, but also had the positive experience with PICS. That's correct, and yeah. And you were able to fill that gap with, with an intervention that you had already been using, SecureCath. That's right. Uh, for CBC. Yeah. So, and so describe yeah. the experience, taking the, the same securement from the peripherally inserted central catheter right. and applying it to the, the CBC. That's correct, yeah. Yep. So basically the, the, key, the key message for me uh, was to do away with the suture. Um, I think the uh, suturing a central line on an intensive care unit is, is you're, you're asking for trouble. Um, it's, a, it's a technique that causes damage to the skin, it causes bleeding, um, and it's potentially harmful for the operator. We've got needle stick injuries to worry about and so on and so forth. And, and it's quite poorly done as well. Um, you know, these aren't surgeons. These aren't high-class surgeons on our intensive care unit. They're usually anaesthetists or intensivists. They're, they're tie-knotting. They're not tying skills. They're not usually that great. So right. it was very poorly done in a very random kind of way. There were sutures everywhere, different numbers, different ways they were doing it. And it, and it was a mess. It would bleed and it would be a problem. So the first thing we had to do was get rid of the suture and replace it with the secure calf. Right. Um, took quite a lot of uh, bold moves on my part um, 
So I had to sort of do a bit of an education program alongside removing the sutures from my ITU. So I didn't say you couldn't use it, but if you wanted one, you'd have to walk across the hostel to the theatre complex to get one, or you could use the object that was right in front of you, and I'll show you how to do it, and I'll show you why it's better. So that was the kind of strategy we used. It took a little while. There was a gradual growth, you know, a gradual growth in, in, in the use of it. And all the time we were using it, of course, I was continuing the same audit, um, assessing each line uh, on a daily basis or every two days depending on how long they've been in the unit so that we could see whether there was a change in the way that these lines were being looked after. So the first step removing sutures from the equation mm. which means you're removing two additional holes from the patient. Well, sometimes four, some Some, one or twice it was six. And, <laughs> wow, it's a lot of suturing. Yep. Yep. And, and in doing so you're also uh, removing the, the barrier to uh, decontamination of the site in between dressing changes. Because yeah. the, the line so, is no longer so. From an infection skin. prevention point of view, there's two, there's two, th- there's two or three issues that I think where the, the Securicath was was showing a clear benefit over the suture. Firstly, every time you make a hole in the skin, you're breaching that barrier, protective for barrier the, the yeah. protective barrier for the patient. Secondly, when you make a hole in the skin, particularly in critical care patients, often coagulopathic, you cause a little bit of bleeding, and that bleeding will sit underneath the the dressing and becomes a beautiful medium for bacterial growth. Thirdly, uh, is that when you come to do your dressing change, and I think this is the most important transformational change, is that you can't lift the catheter up. There's a weak spot underneath the catheter. Once you've you've sutured it down, you can't clean 360 degrees around the catheter. So being able to lift it vertically up and doing a really nice clean with a chlorhexidine alcohol-based product, whatever was the policy in your hospital, I think, and then laying it back down with a nice new clean dressing absolutely has made the biggest difference. Right. So it, it helps with the, the, the change antisepsis more compliantly getting 360-degree yeah, coverage. Yeah. From a patient standpoint, and we're still in Copenhagen right now, um, this isn't how you would position it to the patient, but if you were to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take two to six holes that mm-hmm. we would put in you, remove them, but then also keep you safer during dressing changes, the patient would probably buy into that. Absolutely. So now that you had, that was your strategy, removing sutures, the benefit of obviously creating a better environment for preventing the the likelihood of infection. Uh, What was the experience like putting it into practice and, and how has it changed your clinical practice? So I've sort of described how, we, how we've gone forward. There was a journey educating people. So it's really important that these things are not just seen as a one-off change. It's a, it's a change in practice that's important as well, not just using it rather than not using it, but understanding the benefits behind it, understanding the long-term benefits over the course of the patient's stay in the intensive care unit and, and not being and just becoming familiar with it. So that, that was the first thing. We, we've reached that point now where I've now, um, they, my, my, my team on my ITU complain if they don't have a secure account. It's normal available. now. It's, this normal. Is used, it's this been is normalized. Standard yeah. Care. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, that's the real thing. And that's a real, for me, it's a real joy to see that we've got to that point where it's now normal practice. Right. The, the, the shiny new toy phase, when you see it on yeah. a marketing brochure, uh, the the pains of implementation and understanding how to make this uh, feel like standard of care to now it's weird to not see it correct uh, on yep. the patient absolutely absolutely so I'll, I'll leave you with this before we, we head back to Bakova would you make a recommendation of Securicath to to other clinicians for their practice absolutely in my experience it's it's definitely something that you should explore as part of your a quality improvement program obviously it's it, it's in, it's difficult to get over that initial 
change in practice, but it's well worth it in my experience because I think we've got some fantastic results. Our lines are looking cleaner and the early evidence that we've got, some emerging evidence suggests that these lines are really not getting infected at all. But we'll wait and see how that goes. But yeah, it's a great product. Outstanding. He is Dr. Matt Jones from Great Britain. The product is Securacath. That's available information at www.securacath.com. Sir, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Remember that you can hear our full uncut interviews with guests of the I Save That podcast as an AVA member benefit. Just visit avainfo.org slash podcast. Coming up, we'll update you on all upcoming AVA network events, including but not limited to the AVA scientific meeting this fall in Columbus. Stay tuned. Here are the AVA network events coming up near you. On July 12th in Olathe, Kansas, Mo Canvan is meeting at Casey Joe's Barbecue, and Marsha Wise is presenting on vascular access complications and tissue adhesives. Learn more and RSVP at mocanvan at gmail.com. That's M-O-K-A-N-V-A-N at gmail.com. Also on July 12th, Starvan is having a network meeting. That's the DFW area. For location and information, please email starvantx at gmail.com. July 17th in Pomona, California. Calivan is meeting at the Pomona Valley Mining Company, and you can earn a CE over dinner. Email calivan.ava at gmail.com. You'll want to do that quickly. Space is limited. On July 18th in Highland, Indiana, Kaivan is having a picnic roundtable at Wicker Memorial Park. The network is bringing the chicken. You just have to bring a dish to share and a lawn chair to sit in. They've also got a liquor permit, so if you're over 21... You're welcome to bring the libation of your choosing. Email kaivan.ava at gmail.com. That's K-I-V-A-N dot Ava at gmail.com. July 19th in Madison, Wisconsin, Wisvan is meeting at Eno Vino downtown. That's sponsored by Teleflex. It's free for members and $15 for potential members. Email wisvan2 at gmail.com for more information. That's W-I-S-Van, the number two, at gmail. Also July 19th in Tampa, Florida, Golf Van is meeting at St. Joseph's Hospital. They're raffling off a VABC exam preparation study set that night. Email floridagolfvan at yahoo.com for more information. That's floridagolfvan. And finally, July 19th in Oakbrook, Illinois, Ivan is meeting at the clubhouse right in Oakbrook Center. The topic is vein preservation and reducing sticks with extended dwell peripheral IV catheters. That's going to be presented by Mary Moretti and Linda Mosser. You can email ivan at ivaccess.net to register or get more information. That's ivan at ivaccess.net. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. In our next episode, we'll chat with Elizabeth Dow from New England INS about certification, credentialing agencies, 
outreach, the personal responsibility of individual clinicians to advance practice, and the responsibility of associations and certifying bodies to establish the specialist standard. Thanks again to NGO Dynamics for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Hudson Garrett, Dr. Matt Jones, and thanks as always to Dabney Coleman. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.